I'm David Fedor. I'm a husband and a father of five children. I also run a travel baseball organization, and I'm the head coach of a JV high school baseball team in Michigan. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss the ecosystem of youth sports and the ever-changing landscape of the $17 billion, with a B, dollar industry. Please feel free to contact us with any topics you would like to see discussed. Lastly, please subscribe and tell your friends about our podcast. So, John, what, what do you do? Let, let's start there. I, obviously, um, you run a crew of umpires. We'll get in that in a minute. But, you know, what's your uh, what's your actual job or, or your career? And um, tell us a little bit about maybe your family and your background. Hey, currently I am employed by a bank and I do project management. I'm a business analyst. Uh, we work with telesales and set up different campaigns for when they're trying to get mortgages. Okay. Uh, I help tell the IT department how to set the stuff up. I don't actually interact with the sales group like that, but just how to do things. Gotcha. And then, um, you know, tell us about, you know, your, a little bit about your family and, you know, did you grow up, you know, we're obviously based here in Michigan. Did you grow up here? Are you from here? What's your, what's your story there? I was born in Huntsville, Alabama, lived in Detroit, lived in Pontiac, actually grew up in West Bloomfield, went through the entire West Bloomfield school district, graduated from West Bloomfield high school. Uh, played sports all throughout my high school career and my uh, sub high school stuff. Uh, played baseball until my sophomore season in high school and then gave that up because I concentrated on football and I was in the band. So football, what, what did you play there? I was a center. Oh, okay. Wow. So back when it was big to be six foot, 210 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's for sure. So then um, well, what about now? You live uh, here in the local area, right? Yep. I live out in Highland now with my family. I've uh, been married since 1990. I have a 24-year-old son and identical twin 11-year-old daughters. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so one of the things that you do, how you know I, I came to know you, is you know you run a crew of umpires. So tell us a little bit about uh, about that. Uh, a two part question. Uh, just give us a general overview, and then how did you uh, get started on this? I'm sure you didn't uh, set out to. Uh, the, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, take over and, and help uh, a band of umpires uh, get some side work here and there. Yeah, no, I definitely did not intend to start this. Uh, originally started in 1986, just messing around a little bit. No one else wanted to do it, so I would call balls and strikes, you know, out safe, that sort of thing. And then in uh, 1988, I believe it was, Flight 255 crashed out at Metro Airport, and my brother was a, a firefighter out at Metro Airport, and they wanted to do a fundraiser for the survivor. So in 1989, I got to call my first official, uh, game. It happened to be a slow pitch softball game between firefighters and police officers. And uh, it kind of took off slowly from there, probably about 1998, 1999. I got super serious about it, started having fun. And uh, that's when I took over uh, scheduling umpires and training them and stuff. So now right now, how many, uh, roughly how many umpires do you have? Uh, and what are the, uh, I mean, Umpiring is, uh, you know, something you could do for uh, pretty much as long as you're alive. So, what are the ages uh, ranges that you got that you uh, that you have there with your crew? Yeah, I uh, currently have around 60 umpires. Um, I had a high of over 100. I think it was 109 or 110. I had at one point, um, but I've got a stable of roughly 60. I only have about 20 that are over 18. The rest are young ones getting trained to move up or just trying to make some extra money. I go as young as 12 because I schedule for a couple house programs and they're able to call eight, nine, 10 year old ball. Um, usually at those age groups, all they're looking for is out safe, fair fall, that sort of thing. So they don't have to step behind the plate and call balls or strikes, which is honestly the more stressful part. So with that, um, obviously do you do some training? So the, do you, do you personally do the training? Do you have a you know, outside company? Do they have like a program? How do I do uh, the training? You do all the training. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I was, had the privilege of attending a camp down in Georgia called the Southern umpires camp with a couple of buddies that I met in Cooperstown when I was, uh, out there umpiring and it's run by major league umpire crews. It's Christian based. They do a lot of donations back to veterans and Christian funds. And when I came back from that, I came back with a lot more skills where I could actually teach the kids. So I run my own clinics. I run a couple every spring um, for the house stuff. And then 
I actually was invited this year to do another clinic for a different league. So uh, this year I'm going to end up having a total of four clinics. They're all free. Um, I use some of my veteran umpires that have also gone to clinics to help train. And we go through rules. We go through your appearance. Um, things as basic as your plate meeting, which you should talk about with the coaches before the game starts. Um, and the actual mechanics where you need to move, how you need to make calls, stuff like that. So we cover a lot, but it's certainly not. And what was the name of the organization? that Southern went? Umpires Camp was the camp I went to. It runs every February. So now, you know, obviously uh, this is not I, – I appreciate the, the job you do. I know it's not an easy thing. So when you get down to it, I mean, how tough is it uh, being an umpire or um, tell us some of the things that maybe people maybe don't realize that are – um, are difficult on, on some of these decisions you have to make. Yeah. Um, if you have two really good teams and two really good coaches, it's easy because they know how to treat the game and treat each other. Uh, the realistic part of it is the minute you step on the field, whether it's your first game or your thousandth game, you're expected to be perfect 100% of the time. Um, a lot of the coaches out there right now were, were probably decent ball players. They don't know all the rules, and that's where a lot of the contention comes in is the misinterpretation of the rules uh, or the feeling that you're out to get my team. You know, you when you're making a call at first base on a batted ball, you're watching the ball, you're making sure no one's interfering with the guy fielding the ball, then you have to track the ball to the base that the fielder's throwing to. you got to see the catch, the touch, where the runner is. There's a lot of moving parts on it. Um, unfortunately, we don't have the ability to sit there like a coach and just watch first base and then decide, hey, that's my player, so I think he's safe, or yeah, he was out or whatever. So it's a lot of moving pieces, especially when you have multiple runners on. So I, a couple years ago, um, my son was in a uh, middle school league, and it was through the through the school, and it was a Christian league, and it was very low, low stress, low, uh, it was not highly competitive, okay? I mean, you literally had kids out there that could barely throw a ball, okay? And the umpire didn't show up, so they needed somebody to call balls and strikes and, you know, safe and out. And it was a low stress. And so I went and did it. Even though it was a low stress environment, I can't tell you how stressed it was for me. <laughs> I was so, I was losing hair and you can see I don't have that much to begin with. And it was very stressful. And I'm like, man, and this game doesn't matter. It doesn't, you know, both teams don't really, you know, they're basically out there just to get some work really yep. and have the camaraderie of it. And so that was a good lesson for me on, um, you know, number one, I want to do a good job, and I'm assuming that all of your umpires do. Yeah, the I don't vast majority they, do. I don't think they, they show up, and uh, I think some, some of the parents think that, you know, they're out to get their kid, like you said, uh, you know, uh, or um, that they're trying to do a bad job. I think they really do want to get the calls right. And then I just realized that, you know, even uh, I'm, I'm watching the balls and strikes, and I'm like, I think that was a ball. You know, but you can't do that. You and I, what I found by the end of that game, I realized that the more confident I was about my call, the more confident the uh, managers were yep. about my call. Absolutely. Um, so I think it has, you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, confidence has a lot to do with, uh, you know, being a good umpire. Would you agree with that or disagree? Absolutely. If you're not type A, you probably won't do very good. Um, you, you have to want to do good. And part of wanting to do good is you have to make sure that if the ball goes here, this is where I need to go. So it's a lot of pre-planning on every play. And sometimes you guess wrong. And like you said, most of us want to do the right thing. We want to get the calls right. But there's so many moving pieces, we sometimes miss it. So and that's where all the stress definitely comes in for us. So going back, uh, you said that you know it's, it's, uh, it's very easy for you when you have two, two teams that are good teams and they know what they're doing and and that's easy so what is your perfect game would you prefer like a 12 to 10 slug fast or a one to nothing uh almost like a perfect uh perfect game i, I think my perfect game actually happened in cooperstown it ended up being i think it was it was three to two or two to one it was 48 minutes seven full innings and uh there weren't a lot of strikeouts. There were probably you know 10 or 12 strikeouts throughout the course of the game, but the ball was put into play. They fielded it. They threw it to the right spot. It's just bang, bang, bang. Nothing, nothing real close. Just a real clean game. And uh, two really good teams, two really good coaches, and they understood the game. And uh, they were really there. I talked to them afterwards as well. And uh, they were there for the kids to develop. They really didn't care if they won or lost, but they were two 
if they were in Michigan teams, they'd probably be like top 10 teams in the state. So they knew how to play the game and how to do it right. So, um, you know, obviously there's a, you know, with, with most of the games that, that we play and there's two umpires, like in major league, there's obviously more, but there's two, there's usually a behind the plate and then there's one out in the field. So what do you prefer? Um, you know, if I, if I made you go do a game right now, would you pick the, uh, behind the plate or out in the field and why? <laughs> I like them both. Um, we're so short of officials right now. I ended up calling right around 600 games last year and I probably did 400 plates and a couple hundred in the field. Um, and out of that, the 400 I worked the plate on, probably 200 of them were solo games. So uh, I like them both. There's advantages to, to both, but um, sometimes you just need a break and you, you think you're going to get it. So you go out in the field and you're busier than you'd be behind the plate. So uh, most umpires will tell you play it. Uh, I'll give you my my novice uh, one. Uh, doing I've only, I've done literally three games, but I prefer the field. Uh, I think that's for me, you know. And and you doing it obviously have a different perspective, but you know every every pitch coming in there, it, it is not easy. So it's it's funny that you would say that uh, to me anyway. That uh, most guys prefer the plate. That's yeah, most funny. guys because we're Type A's, we like the control. <laughs> and when you're in the field, it's like you're ceding some of that control to somebody else. The difference between the field and the plate, you kind of hit it on the head a little bit, is um, to be a catcher or to be an umpire, you got to be a little crazy because people are throwing a ball at you. Yep. And some of these, I did some college ball last year, and some of these kids are throwing 90 miles an hour. And then it gets fouled off, it hits you in the face, hits you in the shoulder, whatever. So um, that that's why some people would pick the field too. So let's talk about the the shortage of umpires. What, yeah. what's You mentioned that briefly uh you know, tell me about that a little bit. Well, back in the 80s, uh, there were a couple of factors that created a, a, I don't know, the perfect storm where there were a lot of umpires. And that was high unemployment. There were a couple of points where we hit 10%. And a couple of things that drive the umpires are having the time to get to the games. Most high school games start at 4 o'clock because they play double headers. Unless you're working a factory job or you own your own business, in today's environment, you're not going to be at a four o'clock game because you have to be there an hour early to talk to your partner, to talk through things. So you have to be at the field at three. Uh, if you're working out here and say you wanted to, to work and your kid went to um, Lakeland or Milford High School, you cannot officiate games in those schools until all of your kids are gone for six years, which means you're going to go somewhere else to call your games. So not only do you have to be there at three o'clock, you have to leave in enough time to get there at three o'clock. So... With the high unemployment back then, they weren't working. They could go wherever they needed to go whenever they wanted. Well, now we're down around 4%, 5%, depending on whose figure you want. And most people can't get out of work to get to those games. And the other side of that was back in the 70s, we really saw a shift where people, um, I don't know, some of them call it competitive, whatever, intense, but they actually became violent towards the officials. Uh, if you get all the surveys that I get and all the results from them, you'll see that the vast majority of people leave the officiating within the first three years because of abuse by coaches and fans. And that was rampant back in the 80s. They'd follow you to your car, they'd vandalize your car, you might get beat up. There was just no control over it. And unfortunately, Michigan's one of the states that doesn't have a law that protects officials. Um, scenario for you. Imagine I was upset with you as my banker and I went into your office and started yelling and screaming and threatening to beat you up and you suck and all this other stuff like the officials get on the field. I mean, that doesn't fly there, right? They'd call the police, you'd get arrested. It happens to sports officials every single day. And for basically what comes out to just over minimum wage. Um, my younger guys, some of them get 20 bucks a game. So they're getting $10 an hour, which is what you can make at McDonald's or Burger King. You don't have to interact with some fool coach that doesn't know the rule that you're getting screamed at about, or maybe you blew the car or whatever. You know, it's not, So we're not doing brain surgery, right? It's a game. So having having said that, so uh, let's say, you know, one thing that, you know, obviously Michigan passed a law tomorrow and, and you know, helps protect the, the umpires or the officials uh, uh, in general. Um, I mean, that's one step, but what else, you know, do you see that things that can be done to make that situation better? Well, one of the things that needs to happen is we need to have coaches better trained. Um, coaches are under the same restrictions that we are, though. It's time. Uh, if, you, if you want to become a better coach and you're doing it for the kids, 
you need to go out and you need to go to your clinics to learn how to coach. Um, I'm sure with what you do, you've gone to a game and you've looked and the other kids are all over the field and the coach is hitting batting practice and you're thinking, what the heck is this guy doing? You know, he's got no, there's no drill set up for him and stuff like that. That's probably two thirds of the teams we see. So dad went out, his kid got caught for whatever reason from a travel team. He started his own travel team. So now he's coaching because his kid couldn't play. He's not a coach. Um, if we could get those guys trained to understand the game and to understand what sportsmanship's all about, I think you'd get a lot of the stuff out of the way. So you're saying actually the training of the coaches would help your job as an official tremendously. And you think that's universal with not only uh, you know uh, baseball but all, all the other sports? I mean, would you? I think it is. I, I really do. I've done some uh, basketball officiating, which I'll never do again because those people are insane. Um, and I've done some. Uh, I've been to some soccer games where the fans, I don't know what they're thinking. Some of the, you know, they're, they're trying to correct a call from 400 feet away that I can't even see. Um, so go back, so go back to that real quick. So yeah. the basketball versus uh, baseball. So, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would you say the basketball portion of it, do you think that maybe the, uh, the fans get more upset because they're more subjective calls, like what a f- actual foul is, or do you think that there's just some, an atmosphere around that game that uh, is more intense? I think it's a, comp- a combination. You've got the, um, you've, you've got, I don't know, all sports, it's a multiple thing. First of all, if you ask a lot of parents what their goals are with the sport, it's going to be totally different than what the kids is. A lot of them are looking to get the kid paid college or go pro or whatever. With basketball, it's really bad because the fouls are so subjective and the fans are right on top of you. It's not like in baseball where there's a fence between you and the fan. I mean, they're literally sometimes two feet from you on the sideline. So they're yelling at you and they're closer than we are sitting right now. And then there's still some of these coaches. Um, some of the local districts will allow a teacher to coach because it's in the contract that if a teacher wants to do it, they get to do it, even though they don't really know how to be a coach for the sport. And that kind of adds to all the tension and everything because they're coaching what they're seeing the NBA do, which isn't high school ball. So it, it kind of builds from both sides. Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, so going back to, to you in mm-hmm. particular, what's your what's your uh, reputation as, as an umpire? A uh, couple couple specific questions. Okay. Uh, do you have a large zone? Do you have a small zone? Uh, are you have a reputation for having no tolerance for anything? I mean, what what do you perceive well, as your as your reputation? I work hard to keep everybody in every game, even the ones that are acting stupid. Um, I, I think people spend a lot of money to play the sport, so until they cross the line where they invite themselves to leave, I, I'm I'm extremely lenient. Sometimes too much so. Um, high schools just started a new policy. Um, where if you make something personal, you can dump the guy right now. Um, before you had some leniency where you could warn them or stick them to the dugout and stuff like that. But it should never get to that point is kind of my whole point with this. If you train the coach right and you follow through with the MHSAA guideline that it's about teaching people to become men and women and sportsmanship and all this other stuff that's thrown out there, you should never have a coach that's verbally abusing anybody uh, or yelling at his own players or her own players. Um, so I, I think I'm pretty lenient as far as that. Uh, I'll certainly dump you in a heartbeat if you get personal uh, or uh, malicious contacts, a huge part of mine. If you make malicious contact, it's a no brainer. I, I have no talents for that at all. Uh, as far as the strike zone, um, We've kind of been told that you want to call a ball and a half on and off the plates now with the with the pitch counts and stuff. Um, I tell all of my officials to do that. The younger you get, the bigger the strike zone. Um, you know, the book tells you what it is, though. It's like mid-chest down to the cup below the knee. It's not the knee. It's actually a ball below the knee. And uh, if the ball touches any part of the white when it crosses through there, it's a strike. Um the younger you go, though, the bigger we are. Nobody likes a walk fest. You know, you're playing a 10U house game and you walk 14 people and you get your maximum runs. Who's learning anything there? So uh, especially for house, we try to get them swinging. Some of the younger travel, I'll do the same thing. I'll call a couple balls off the plate. Um, but once you get the high school and the college stuff, you know, it's, it's got to be a strike. So talk about travel a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, growing up, um, you know, 
travel was not, you know, it's a relatively new concept, the, the idea of travel anything. So what do you think uh, the experience of uh, somebody that was 10 years old uh, 30 years ago and the experience now uh, at 10 years old, um, you know, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? And, and don't hold back because, I mean, obviously I, I um, you know, I run a travel baseball organization. Okay, it's not, it's not a secret. However, I also think uh, I'm very critical of, I guess you would say my peers or um, other, you know, travel sports programs because I feel, um, you know, not always are the kids' best interests at, at heart. So what do you see and, and, and how, uh, how have you seen the evolution over the last, let's say, 20, 30 years? Back when I was in school, there was a thing called travel ball that was actually travel ball. You went, you tried out, you either made the team or you didn't, and each community had one. Well, now look in our area. We've got the Cannons, we've got the Falcons, we've got the Shamrocks, um, five tools in the area. I mean, I could keep, I could name probably 25 organizations within just our school district. Um, travel used to be travel. Now you've got community. You've got advanced, you've got open, and some of the others have two more divisions on top of that. Um, even down south, it's gotten bad. Uh, I've got friends that live in Alabama, Georgia, Texas. They call ball year-round, and, and pretty much across the board, we've agreed that travel ball in the last 20 years has gone downhill. Um, not everybody, because there's groups that are doing it right. But a lot of what's happened, uh, and I used to sit on a baseball board locally, is when you go to pick a team for travel, you're picking for multiple reasons. You're picking for skill, you're picking for coachability, and sometimes, honestly, you're looking at the parents. And you may have a kid that's very skilled, you may be able to coach him, and pardon the French, dad's a Well, he got caught, because you don't want to tear the rest of your team up because of this one guy. Mm -hmm. So he gets mad, he owns a tool dye company or something or whatever. He goes out and starts his own travel group and goes and brings, you know, 10 more kids into play with him. The team's horrible and nobody's really learned anything. So that, that's, for me, that was a major contributor when just anybody could go out and start their own travel team just because they didn't like that their kid got caught. And th there's a huge, huge misconception out there that my kid's going to get his college paid for with baseball. It doesn't happen. Um, Jake Lee went to Milford High School, was signed by the A's, or the Angels, I mean. Um, he went to Oakland University for his second school. Do you think Oakland University paid a full-ride scholarship for him to go play baseball there? I mean, it just the days of Drew Henson at Michigan getting his you know scholarship for playing baseball, it just doesn't happen. Most of your baseball players will go to junior college, pay their own way. And, and call it good. So, so here, this one, you might on this topic, you might find this conversation funny. I, I had this conversation in the last, <laughs> you know, with our tryout season. It's usually in, um, you know, June, July, August in that in that time frame. So within the last seven, eight months, I asked a, a parent. I said, "What, what is your goal?" The kid's ten years old. Well, it's, you know, I want to put him in a, in a spot where, you know, he can, you know, we can pay for college, get a get a scholarship. I said, okay, so the goal is to pay for college? And he said, yeah. And so my advice to him was stop playing travel baseball. And he looked at me like I was a crazy person. I said, look, you're paying two, three, four thousand dollars a year. You got, you know, 10 years to save. That's, you know, 40 grand. And then you got college paid for. Yeah. And I, and he looked at me and I said, <laughs> if that's really what your goal is, because, you know, if you look at, like you said, that the amount of actual scholarships that are given out full ride, yeah, you might get a quarter here, a little bit here, but, um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a marketing uh, uh, thing with, with some of the organizations of, you know, this guy went to play uh, over here and went to play over there. And, um, and that's what I think I call, I, I, I call it like the lotto mentality of, yeah. um, you know, some of these parents, they think that going in there and spending all this money uh, with a quote travel program is going to get their kid, uh, you know, a full ride college scholarship. Yeah. The, the bottom line with baseball and not softball, but baseball, it doesn't pay any bills for college. 
they're not going to give you money to play there if you're not making money. That's why the football players get full rides because they make a ton of money. Right. Uh, Alabama last year, I think, revenue, gave yeah, twenty-three million dollars back from just the football team after the season. Right. Revenue generating sports. Softball, on the other hand, you may get a scholarship, but so, you're not getting it for baseball. So uh, talk about that. So you uh, you do softball as well, right? Yes. So given the the differences, I mean, it's it's. I believe it's a completely different game. Okay, it's got a lot of similarities, but it's a completely different game. So, how is it dealing with those players uh, um, with baseball and those players with softball? Let's start. Let's start there with the players themselves. The the uh, softball players are all business when they come in there. You can get a doubleheader varsity high school softball day done, and go and watch the second game of the boys baseball game. Um, as you mentioned, there's different roles, so there's no leading off and all the dancing back and forth crap that all those boys do, trying to draw the throws. But they come in there, they take their cuts, maybe they hit the ball, maybe they strike out, maybe you make a bad call, they don't care, they go sit down. Um, baseball, stepping in and out of the box all the time, looking for codes, the coach is calling 400 pitches during the game. Um, I think a lot of times those players are so distracted. Okay, where do I need to look? Okay, I got to look at the third base guy for the signal. Now I got to look back at the first base coach. The pitcher's looking at you, taking a sign from you, which is really not supposed to be doing, and then looking into the catcher, and then he throws over the first five times. It's it's just um, it's different. So it seems like for me that the boys overall are more stressed about it. And sometimes it comes out in their behavior. They forget what to do sometimes. You know, they'll hit the ball, they'll forget to run. And this is at the varsity level sometimes. And then the fans, they go crazy and, and everything else. You don't have that with the girls. They come in there and bam, 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 they're done. I mean, I've done a doubleheader high school game set in under two hours, you know, like two hours and ten minutes. So so now that's the players. Now what about let's go to the next level, which is the coaches. Uh, similar uh, thoughts there or – uh, at the high school level, they're all they're all about the same. You get some schools where the the coaches are really good and know what's going on, and you get others that are that are clueless. Uh, we get a magazine. I can't remember if it's every quarter or what it is. We get it from MHSAA, and at the end of the year for the sports seasons, we'll get how many ejections occurred at each school. Um, and there's different levels. There's ejections. There's areas of concern, stuff like that. And it's the same schools year after year that have the highest number of ejections. Um, and most of them happen in the boys' sports. They're in, in boys' baseball, and then hockey's up there for, you know, dirty hits and stuff like that. But uh, baseball, football, and uh, baseball, football, those are the two big ones. So that kind of goes along with what you said earlier, with which is – uh, training of the coaches, getting them to know the 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 rules properly, getting them to uh, how to how to behave properly, mm-hmm. and um, so it kind of ties in what you said earlier. Then I guess yeah, they're the coaches are kind of like the officials. For a coach, you've got to well, you used to have to attend a rules meeting, which basically covers the rules that the MHSAA wants to highlight that year. It doesn't cover the whole rule book. Um, some of them are in line, some are in person too. By the way. Um, my rules meeting for baseball is online. Um, so you take you take a coach's thing, it kind of tells you the expectations, and then there's a couple other courses you have to take. Most of them are online. You take your concussion protocol. Um, Michigan's got that new SAFE Act. So you can do it all in about six hours, eight hours at the most, and you're a coach. There, there's nothing in there that that you do that really – covers whether you really know the rules or not or whether you know how to run a practice or or treat young ladies and young men um so if you could train them yeah that would be great now the umpires we do the same thing to become an umpire for the state of michigan you go online and you register it costs you 20 bucks to register for your sport it costs you 40 dollars to register as an official and you take we have to submit to a background check you have to do your concussion awareness, and then you get a rules test you have to take, which isn't even posted yet in Michigan. And you can continue to take that test as many times as you want until you pass. But it's 25 questions, so eventually it recycles the same questions. So if you screen print, anybody could take the test and pass it. It doesn't mean you're good. It doesn't mean you're bad. And then the only other... Well, at that point, once you pass the test, you can officially 
officiate that sport. But it doesn't mean that you know the rules. It doesn't mean you've ever called a game. It means nothing. But if you want to do postseason play, now you have to join a local association that's authorized by MHSAA. Pay to join their association. They're supposed to give you training, which most of them, they do a rules meeting. And we sit in a room kind of like we're doing now, and we talk about the rules and what we think they mean. And that covers the requirement for the state. And then you can do postseason if you get, I think it's six reviews in your support or in your sport um, over the last three years or something like that. So it's really easy to become an official, but it's not easy to become a good official. There's not really a lot of so support we, out there to train you. So uh, I've talked to people recently about um, like different mentoring programs with, you know, older ball players mentoring younger ball players. Mm-hmm. Um, what about, you know, I'm just throwing this out here, but what about the same type of thing? It sounds like you're doing a little bit of that of, you know, you know, having some of the, the umpires or yourself mentoring some of the younger umpires. But yeah. what if, um, you know, would that, would that be a logical step to have something like that or require something like that? Yeah, the high school actually has a program. Um, you can go into it as a junior and a senior. You take the same stuff as you do just to be a regular umpire and uh, trying to think of what it's, it's called the legacy or something. I'd have to look up the name of it, but you have to be a junior or senior in high school to do it. And you can actually officiate JV and under games with an adult and uh, same pay, same everything. You still have to buy the equipment. You got to buy the pants, the shirt, you know, the indicator and all, all the other good stuff that goes with it. And, uh, it only costs them $20. So it's, it's a phenomenal program if you have somebody that will work with you on it. And it's good for one year. So if you do it as a junior, if you want to do it again as a senior, you pay full price, which isn't really a lot. I mean, it was 60 yeah. bucks, I think. But um, I have found that some of the people that do that, the kids do a great job. Um, in the magazine I was mentioning earlier, you hear some success stories um, that they put in there. And then uh, with like what we do, I've got a few guys that have moved out of the area and they're umpiring in other groups now out of state, some of them. And uh, we get kudos for that all the time. So it's definitely good to to mentor people, match a veteran with a rookie um, for a couple things. One, it makes the guy that's the rookie feel a little more at ease. Um, You can let the coaches know at the plate meeting, I'm not going to put up with any crap. If you have any questions, we'll figure it out. If he makes a wrong call or I make it up, we'll talk, we'll fix it. But, uh, my, my overriding message whenever we do that mentoring with the coaches is, look, nobody's perfect. We may make mistakes. We're hoping not to. So just remember that you're not going to do everything right in this game either. You're going to send a guy stealing second. He's going to get thrown out by 20 feet. Or you're going to put a butt down. <laughs> the kid's going to miss the, you know, whatever. Right. There's all sorts of ways to win and lose games. Right. So keep it in perspective, and we'll have a good game. So, um I know you never have any disagreements with coaches ever, um, <laughs> but uh, if hypothetically there was a disagreement, uh, what what's the best way for them to uh, to approach you? Now, my tactic is come up to you and go, "Hey, John, you're blind." Um, is that how you what you prefer? Yeah, no, not really. Um, if you're saying it quiet and the fans aren't hearing it, I'm fine with it. But um, usually, what you're supposed to do, the way to handle it, is ask for time and then come out and talk to whoever made the call. Uh, there's certain things that you're not supposed to ask about or complain about, and that's ball strikes, um, an out or a safe, which is a judgment call, um, things like that. If it's, I get this a lot at the high school level. Um, the coach will come just screaming out of the dugout because there was a close play at first, and the, the guy in the field calls the guy out at first base. Um, who knows what he's saying because he's yelling so loud, right? He's got spit flying off his face. He's just in a rage because the first out of the game was close and the kid's out, right? It's like, what are you asking for? He's like, well, no, he was safe. It's like, well, you can ask for three different things at first base. Did he pull his foot? Did he bobble the ball? Or did he miss a swipe tag? It's like, no, he was safe. Well, which one are you asking for? Because out and safe, you can't question. It's a judgment call. We're going to get most of them right. We're going to screw some of them up. So on that, so let's say you're behind the plate and that, that play happens and he's, you know, it's a close play at first base. Can That's the umpire, or excuse me, can the manager come out and ask you at home play to take a look, another look at it or get, nope. um, how does, what, what are, uh, cause you know, we, as a coach, I've had different, uh, 
meetings at home plate where they said, oh, yeah, if you want us to talk to the other umpire, no problem. Other ones, no, we will not. So what is the what's the actual rule? And then what's the maybe unwritten rule if there is such a thing? Uh, and, and tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, well, the written rule is if you have an appeal, the proper appeal is to wait for the play to end and you ask for time. And then you have to go and ask the official that made the call. So if it's a play on the field, say first or second base, and the field umpire makes a call, you can go and ask him to see if he wants to get help on the call. At that point, the coach goes and sits down, and the two officials will get together and they'll talk about it. Now, the thing that a lot of people miss, including the high school coaches, is that guy in the field doesn't have to give you the appeal. Um, he's stupid if he doesn't, you know, unless it was something so obvious that the coach is just trying to be an idiot about it. But, you know, if it's a close play, then he can come out and say, hey, can you get some help? Now, unless it's a fair – or I'm sorry, unless it's a, an outer or a safe, say maybe oh, he pulled his foot, can you ask your partner? you got to get help on that. Uh, if it's just, no, he was safe, no, he was out – you can't even appeal that. Even if we've, I've had one where uh, it was a high school game and my, my field coach or my field umpire blew the play so bad at first base. Um, I, I don't know if he meant to call him safe, but he called him out. The kid was two steps past the bag, called him out. It was first out of the inning. The coach was understandably upset. He came out totally wrong about it though. I mean, it was like he was going to come out and blow the whole town up over this missed call. And that's when I had to tell him, I can't overturn his call. He's already called him out. We'll talk to him. You know, go ask him. He's like, nope, he was out. It's like, all right. And then I talked to the guy after the game. I'm like, do you really think that he was out? He's like, no, but I called him out. I can't change it. Like, well, yeah, you could. <laughs> I can't change his call. Um, but he came to me on that call. It's like, I can't help you. It wasn't It wasn't my call. It's a field umpire's call. So ask him first if he wants help. He'll come talk to me. And then we'll give you the judgment. And then he'll either change or affirm his call. Because I can't change it. He's got to change it. All right. So this is a serious question. How many times have you changed a ball call to a strike call and a strike call to a ball? Absolutely zero. <laughs> so I think that's one of the things that is one of my uh, funny things is that, you know, everybody, all the coaches should know that you're not allowed to argue balls and strikes. But every, you know, it seems like all the coaches do. And that's one of my advice to coaches in our organization is, I've never seen an umpire switch a ball from a strike or a strike to a ball ever. Just on a check swing. Yep. Yeah. The the funny part about that, you were talking about things being hard and easy. The the hardest part really is to call balls and strikes because you're setting up behind a catcher and there's a batter. Batter's standing there waving his bat around, may or may not swing. Sometimes you're looking through the batter's elbows to see the pitcher. The catcher's moving around. Now I've got to get in a position where I can see the ball coming in. So we call it the slot. It's a spot over the catcher's left shoulder, slightly to the left of that, where you can see the entire plate and you can see the pitcher. Well, at any given time, batter, catcher, whatever, they can move. Well, even at, you know at a 60-foot, 6-inch mound, which the older kids play at, the ball could be coming in anywhere from 70 to 90 miles an hour. Uh, what would a major league guys have three tenths of a second to decide to swing or not, right? Well, at any time somebody can move in there and now you're obstructed. So how do you how do you make that call? If you can't see it, we always say you can't see it, you can't call it. Um, and what makes it difficult are those people moving. You've seen catchers, they'll set up and then they're really, they want the pitch inside, but they set up outside to try and fool the batter. So. Ball's coming in, you'll jump to the left. Those are the hardest things. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so we, we, but we're expected to get 100% of those right. And we're talking in high school varsity, the difference between a ball and a strike is like an inch. You know, if you go, if you go two balls off the plate, that's a ball. But when I'm looking from first base on a right-handed batter, that's coming right mid-thigh, it looks like a darn good pitch. Mm -hmm. So... Um, one of the things that we tell our uh, catchers, and you can either uh, confirm this or, or tell me not to teach this, is that <laughs> one of the issues is when the catcher uh, tilts his head up or lifts his head up um, too quick, 
uh, and obstructs the view of the umpire. Is that is that good advice? And the other thing is, with that, we also tell them not to hold it there and, and quote, frame it for, <laughs> you know, uh, 45 minutes while uh, yeah, yeah. you're trying to get, <laughs> get, we're trying to get the call. Right. Um, what are your thoughts on that and that advice? Well, if you're moving your head, it shouldn't obstruct the umpire if you set up in the right spot. But usually when you tilt that head up, you stand up a little bit. And what we train to do is we train to put our eyes right at the top of the strike zone. Um, you can see the batter's knees and you can see where the catcher sets up. So you kind of know the catcher usually set up right at the bottom of the zone, right? Unless it's 0-2 and, and then they move around. Um, so if we put our eyes at the top of the zone, it gives us a pretty good view of the plate unless somebody really moves. If you stand up, you know, I, I can't see through you. So the bigger thing is don't stand. You want to move around, that's great. Um, framing the ball, it's more, if you stick it for a couple seconds, you're good. But if you're just holding it there, that's kind of showing the umpire up. And some guys get mad at that. I don't usually care. I'll tell the guy, I don't care how long you hold it there. It's still a ball. So the other thing we tell our catchers is don't try to, you know, if it's three feet outside, don't grab it and then pull it on the corner yeah. and try to uh, uh, claim it's a strike, right? The more I you mean, move, you're, you're, yeah. it's bad. It okay. tells me you think it's a ball. Yeah. If you're flicking that wrist two feet on a close pitch, you're probably not going to get a strike. If, if you got to move it that far, you think it's a ball. <laughs> yeah. So now, I mean, we're flipping the glove too, Dave. Yeah, there if you you're go. Catching everything, right? By dropping down to your cup and catching with a glove on the gun is probably not a strike. So one of the things, um, you know, you obviously been doing this for quite a long time, and you've got all kinds of stories. You've given us a bunch of stories, and they've been they've been great. So <laughs> give me a couple stories that are uh, more on the on the. Uh, clean, but on the on the funny side, that uh, maybe humorous, that um, you know, people listening to this might might find funny. It uh, it was actually a twelve u house game, and uh, boys baseball. So the boys were eleven and twelve, and uh, since it was house, they all knew each other. A little bit of rivalry between schools. Uh, I think one of the schools was. Uh, I think it was probably most of the kids were Muir. The other was either White Lake or um, uh, maybe Highland Middle School, and it was still around. But whatever, they were mostly one school. So he had that rivalry anyway. And uh, the, the one catcher was talking to the batter the whole game. It was obviously we were friends, and he kept joking with the guy that he was going to ask his girlfriend out, <laughs> you know, trying to distract him. And the funny part was the batter just kept laughing at him. You know, she'll never go out with you. Are you kidding? Right, right, right. And it gets dirtier from there the older you get, of course. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's usually the boys doing the, the trash talk like that. Um, so as long as, it's, as long as it's somewhat, jokes. Is it, as, as long as it's, uh, so you kind of read it and as long as it's good banter, you let it go. You don't you step, step in. <laughs> we don't even usually address it unless it gets really vulgar. And then it's like, hey, dude, clean it up a little bit. You know, as long as it's just, we all hear it there. Uh, it's usually okay. You're just not supposed to get too personal. Yeah. But the girlfriend comments okay, even yeah, though just, that's personal. Yeah, I, actually, I chuckle at some of them sometimes. All right. So tell me some other stories. I mean, obviously, we, you know, you're, uh, you know, basically making minimum wage doing this. Uh, you know, as a coach, I don't make anything. Um, you know, in the travel organization, so uh, people ask, you know. Why are you doing this? And and some of it is uh, the experience and being able to give back, and um, you know some of the experiences that that you've had. So give us some some stories that are, might be you know things that have been um, you know that, that touched you or you thought were cool that um, you know a little bit different than the the funny stories there. Yeah, I think the one of the coolest thing that ever happened is we had a local team that called me up about thirty days before they were heading to Cooperstown Dreams Park. And this was back in 2012. I had no idea what it was. You know, I know about Cooperstown, but what's this Dreams Park thing, right? Um, so Paul was coaching and he said, hey, we, we need an umpire. We just found out. He says, can you go? So, uh, you know, I checked around. I got the time off. I was actually down in Texas on business. So I flew in from Texas to New York and got to go to the, that village. And you've been there. Mm -hmm. Um and the really cool part was I got to go there and see all these little 12-year-olds that actually know what baseball is all about. I mean, the excitement that they have. Um, I got in at like 2.30 in the morning, which was Friday night, Saturday morning. And 6 o'clock, I wake up, I'm going, what the heck is all that noise? 
the kids were maybe 30 feet outside my bunkhouse playing wiffle ball at 6 30 <laughs> in the morning um and as the week went on it just got better um kids are getting hammered you know they're losing 20 to nothing with home runs and the kids that are getting pounded are high-fiving the runners as they're going around the bases and stuff and, and things like that so i mean that's probably some of my most cherished things um i've been blessed i've gone back every year since 12. uh the other things are when you when you get a player that you've umpired for that's gone pro or gone to college. And you've um, had some of those? Yeah, we mentioned Jake Lee. Um, he's obviously uh, in the minors with um, the Angels right now. Uh, another one is Aaron Moskovitz. I went to school with his dad, Corey. Um, he's playing college ball right now. Uh, pretty darn good player. But um, I used to coach uh, football as well, and I've had some players that I coached that have gone on to that. And the, the really cool part is when those people see you again, and I guess I haven't changed in 30 years. I don't know. Um, they'll come up and introduce yourself. It's like, you remember me? And it's like, no, not really. And then they'll tell me their name. And it's like, oh, crap. Yeah, I remember you. You know, you've changed a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. going four feet. Yeah, yeah. Put absolutely. on 100 pounds. So, I mean, that's the coolest thing for me. That, that's the only reason I do it. So, you have, um, obviously, I know, uh, I mean, you, you spent a lot of time doing this. And um, so, I, I'm sure that you obviously have a supportive wife that, support you in this uh, uh, endeavor. Um, what's the hardest part for her? Uh, we kind of passed by in the summer. Um, you, you mentioned one of the problems with travel baseball is it never stops. Um, I got maybe a whole month off this year total. Uh, if I combine all the little individual days from baseball because we roll into summer ball, fall ball, and I'm doing winter ball right now. And then spring ball starts in March. So literally uh, in the summer, on uh, Monday through Wednesday, I'll be walking out the door. She's walking in the door. Hi, how's it going? See you later. And then I'll come home and she'll be in bed, um, you know, unless it's Wednesday or Thursday or something. So, I mean, I know that's got to take a toll. Um, the good news for me, though, is I get to work out of the house. So I get to see my kids all the time. I, I do most of the cooking. Um, unless I get something early, I have to go to for a ball game. So it, it kind of works out. It's just hard not seeing each other a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I have a very uh, equally like you, I have a supportive wife that allows us um, to do what we do. So, um, OK, so coming up, I got a couple uh, things here at the end here. I just wanted to throw to you. So here's a hypothetical one. OK, I'm going to put you on the spot because it wasn't uh, uh, I didn't give you any indication that this was coming. So um, you get to have uh, dinner with three athletes, past or present. Uh, who are the three, and what are you eating? Oh, boy. I'll give you a few seconds to uh, digest that one. Well, my first one would be Bear Bryant. Um, being from Alabama, we kind of get assigned a sports team when we're born. Yeah. Um, it's not like up here where you can root for one in baseball and one in basketball and change whenever you want. So I've been a diehard Crimson Tide fan. Um that's a, that's a tough, a three list, huh? I'd love to hang out with Pete Rose um, as a ball player, not a manager. Um, still has more hits than anybody else in the game, and sports writers still hate him. Um, I don't know who my third one would be. I mean, my third my third favorite person of all time, you know, outside of family and stuff, would be John Wayne. Is that um, you're you're not going in within the confines of the question here? Yeah, I know it's it's the third uh, so one. You got to do another. Uh, we'll uh, I'll tentatively accept John Wayne. I think but... he played football though. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know who my third one would be. I mean, there's so many there's so many great athletes. Um, I'm trying to think of some of my favorites that were that were good people, because that's for me that's just as important. Um, I'd love to have dinner with Nick Saban, too. I mean, I wasn't a fan of his, the way he came to Alabama, but he's he's developed some strong men. No, absolutely. So it's funny. You got um, you got two coaches and a player in here. So even though, even though you're back. an official, you love coaches is what I'm, yeah. I'm getting out of this. I do. I do. I, I have very few coaches that I have you side when I see when I walk up to a field. Um, I do have one that I will never call a game for uh, because of repeated abuse that he heaps on every official. Um, but just, just one of those. I, heck, in 
since 1986. So what would that be? 34 years, right? Yeah, 34 years. I've probably I've thrown out less than 30 coaches. So on um, following on that, uh, so you got these three, and what are you having to eat with these with these three guys? Oh, I'm eating a big old steak, <laughs> steak and potatoes. That's my meal. All right. Um, all right. Last question, and then I'll let you get out of here. Um, what what charity or cause do you support or have a special place in your heart for? There's actually a couple. Um, you got to give me one. Got to give Only you one. one. Well, I used to run. I, I was the chairman for the Relay for Life, um, so I'm a super strong supporter of cancer research. Um, is Relay for Life still going? It is. Okay. Um, the one that I used to, that I was a chair for for a couple of years out at Milford High School is now merged with another area because of numbers games. But uh, I, I think that that research has made a lot of strides. I mean, I've got a couple of causes like that I really support, but uh, uh, without the research, we're not going to cure it. And I've lost family members to it. I just, I lost a great uh, friend uh, two weeks ago to brain cancer. So it's a big one. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, thank you. So uh, on that, uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to, um, we're actually going to make a, not a large donation, but we're going to make a donation in that charity's name or uh, oh, wow. in that, to that charity in your name. Um, oh, and, you. uh, for, you know, coming on and, uh, you know, being part of this. And, uh, so that's what we're going to, we're going to do. So oh, I appreciate that. That's wonderful. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's not millions, but, yeah. uh, you know, a little bit helps. uh, absolutely. And, and we, you know, one of the things that, <coughs> uh, I personally preach is, uh, giving back to the community and, you know, helping out, um, you know, uh, any ways that you can. And, you know, obviously you do that. And so, you know, thank you for what you do. Um, you know, I, I know, uh, like I said earlier, it's, it's not, a, it's not an easy job. So I know it's a labor of love and, you know, it's, it's clear that I, I, I know for a fact that you, uh, you're a good man. I know that you love what you do. And, um, you. I, I, you know, I think I've given you a couple of feedback on some of the younger uh, umpires that, mm -hmm. you know, you've brought along and, um, yeah, we appreciate you know, that feedback too. And, you know, and it wasn't, uh, this, you know, the one I told you about was, um, you know, the difference between, uh, one season where we talked about confidence, right. And, mm -hmm. uh, this particular umpire, um, you know, a little on the younger side, nothing wrong with young umpires, but, a little on the younger side, the second year, much more confident, uh, more willing to take charge, more willing to own his, own the calls and not let uh, any any of the managers or even the the, the crew that he's working with, um, you know, uh, alter what what he thought. And you know, I, I sent you a message about that. So yep. uh, anyway, continue to do what you're doing, and thank you for uh, for doing this. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right.